Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Holly Ainley, Head of Programs and Creative Engagement at the National Centre for Writing, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. Here at Dragon Hall, we are busy getting ready for our exclusive crime writing masterclass this week with CWA dagger-winning writer Ellie Griffiths. This masterclass forms part of the NCW Academy, our brand new home for creative writers. And you can discover all our upcoming workshops over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash workshops. In this episode of The Writing Life, NCW's former CEO Chris spoke to a best-selling crime writer who many of us know and admire. He is Ian Rankin, talking about his new standalone short thriller, The Rise. Ian Rankin was born in the Kingdom of Fife in 1960 and graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 1982. He is the internationally best-selling author of the Inspector Rebus and Detective Malcolm Fox novels, as well as a string of standalone thrillers. His books have been translated into 36 languages and are bestsellers on several continents. Today, you'll hear Ian and Chris discuss Ian's much-loved series character, Inspector Rebus, and his return to the page in a new phase of life in Ian's Amazon original story, The Rise. Ian shares the challenges he found in writing a short story and considers the way writers always find a way to tell the stories they need to tell. He chats with Chris about his thoughts on the upcoming TV adaptation of Rebus and the differences between novel writing and screenwriting. So now, without further ado, I'm pleased to hand over to Chris in conversation with Ian Rankin. Welcome, Ian Rankin, to The Writing Life. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just back from holiday, rested, tanned, about a stone overweight. Uh, You know, everything you would expect from a good holiday. Do you, do you still get that sort of September-ish back-to-school college feeling that we all get, or has that gone now? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I tend to, my year tends to be revolve around the writing of books or the promoting of books, so September is kind of meaningless to me. Mm-hmm. It's usually the time when I'm just starting to get a little bit twitchy because I need to start writing a book or a project soon, but nothing is quite happening yet. So you've kind of got that anticipatory feel about the whole thing. Yeah, well, yeah, and that never goes away, that fear and the adrenaline. That never goes away. It doesn't matter how many books you've written. It is as though you're writing your very first book for an audience that doesn't know you at all. (laughs) I'm not sure if our listeners will be comforted or appalled by that prospect (laughs) of it never changing. I was appalled. I was appalled. I mean, I thought once you'd written five or ten books, it would be like stripping a car engine. You know, you could just do it blindfold. Um, but it ain't like that. It ain't like that. Every every book is a is a, a new set of fears. Yeah, I've got a very vivid memory of uh, talking to Naomi Alderman, who um, was, I think, just starting to write her fourth novel at the time, and she just looked at me and said, oh, I just sat there for two days thinking, I've got no idea how I did this the last three times. <laughs> well, it, I think it, what helps me is that I don't do a lot of planning before I start, so... It is a leap into the void, but I know from past experience that everything will be all right in the end. So, in fact, more crime writers than you might imagine, um, Chris, they 
don't know what they're going to do when they start. They don't know who the killer is. They don't know why the person was murdered, if it is a murder. They really don't know much about what's going on. And they just fly by the seat of their pants. And the story, the book, um, the narrative eventually tells them where to go, which is mm. fun. Mm. What, what's, this, what's the kind of shape of that fear that you, that you have in this sort of place in the year, in this time? I think, every, you know, almost everybody I know in the creative industries, as we must call them apparently, <laughs> um, has that imposter syndrome. You know, mm. this is a time I'll be found out. This is a book people will hate. Uh, this is me falling off a cliff face. Um, because, you know, when you're younger, you feel that each book is getting better and better and better and better. And you're learning. And as you learn, each book does improve. But there must come a point where that stops. There must come a point where you're not learning anymore and the books are not improving, I would imagine. And then you've got this kind of plateau. I think Ruth Rendell a long time ago talked about this notion that you get a plateau that you're on and you just hope that the plateau goes on for quite a long time mm. um, before you start then to go downhill slowly, gently into that good night. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I sometimes wonder if the, the concept of late work has sort of been invented to kind of describe a very particular sort of post-plateau period for some writers mm. or not. Really yeah, and I mean, you, 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 the, the other thing is you're aware as you get, you know, in the, your young days, you're young and hungry and you're snapping at the heels of all these bigger selling writers, better known writers. And then you become one of those bigger selling writers or better known writers. And then you're suddenly aware of these people snapping at your heels again. <laughs> and you think, all right, so they want me to move out the way now so that their generation can come through. I'm just a blockage that's stopping this younger generation from, from getting up to the plateau that I'm on. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh, it's a weird one. I started very young, and I probably maybe I even started too young. I had no idea what I was doing. I was in my early twenties when I wrote my first novel. Mm-hmm. I really had no life experience, no idea what I was doing, and why I invented this guy Rebus, who was older than me and had life experiences that I had never had and never would have. I've got no idea. <laughs> there was there was no sort of kind of, or do you think there was an element of kind of projection there that you you wanted to be looking from that angle? I think there's an element of projection in that he's the bigger, tougher me that I wish I could have been. Mm. I was the kind of quiet, bookish, shy, creative kid at school who just locked himself in his bedroom at night and wrote poems to girls he couldn't talk to in the playground mm. um, that they would never see, um, poems they would never see, uh, and eventually song lyrics and uh, short stories and what have you. But then there's this kind of action man, Rebus, who gets in all kinds of scrapes and always has a perfect one-liner um, and has heft, he has physical heft, and, and he's sharp, and he gets into dangerous situations, which I would shy away from. Um, so he, in some ways, has been my Mr. Hyde, mm-hmm. which allows me to be gentle Dr. Jekyll. Interesting. Well, I, I wonder, kind of on that note, I wonder we're here in part today to talk about your new story, your new book, which is coming out in very early November with Amazon Original Stories called The Rise. And that is uh, kind of, or do you want to tell us a little bit about the concept of, of the Amazon original stories, kind of the, the, the brief that you had and before we talk about the, the story itself? Sure. Well, I, the brief I got was um, this will be an ebook and an, an audio book, and it's to be consumed hopefully in one sitting. So there, was, there were kind of restrictions on length, restrictions on how complicated it could be for the listener or the reader, um, you know, how many characters you were having to focus on and everything else. Uh, and that was it. I mean, I was given a lot of leeway. I was given a lot of freedom. And, and for me, one of the pleasures of it was 
um, that it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a slow write. It wasn't. I was I was having to sit down for the length of time it would take to write a novel, for example. Mm-hmm. It could be done in a few weeks, hopefully, and that turned out to be the case. And it wasn't going to be a rebus. It wasn't necessarily going to be set in Scotland. And I'd had this idea at the back of my mind for a long time about this kind of these ghost town areas of London where you get these huge high rise blocks, steel and glass blocks that go up that nobody seems to live in. Um, if you go past them at night, the, the the windows are darkened because they've been bought by hedge funds mm-hmm. or by foreign nationals as a so they can hide their money away um, or as a safe place should something happen in the country uh, of the owner and they have to flee uh, and London seems like a safe place to them. And it's this kind of invisible, it's part of London, it seems invisible. Um, and it's a side of London that hasn't much been written about in fiction. It has, in fact, there have been plenty of books about the oligarchs and the dark money and everything else that come, flows through London, um, but not much in fiction. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I'd had was, you know, I've got I'd have a, a night security guard who's got the whole building to himself because nobody lives there. Um, and I saw it as being quite filmic, but I couldn't get anybody interested in a film. <laughs> so you do what you need to do, and you find other other routes for your, for your storytelling if there's a story that needs to get out. And I just thought this is perfect. It's a perfect length to tell this one high concept tale of uh, what it starts with a murder. It starts with a night security guy being murdered in what is essentially an empty, high-tech, high-security building. Mm. It's interesting you say you kind of considered it filmic. I think the first kind of couple, two or three pages, the image that came to mind was uh, an Edward Hopper picture for me, kind of looking at a lit building from the outside uh, with kind of some sparse life inside and not quite sure what was going on there. Um, the reason I kind of started there, I suppose, thinking about the the, the Rebus Jekyll, and we have uh, D.S. Gillian Gish in, in this um, story in The Rise, can you talk us a little bit about kind of why or how she came to you and kind of what she offers you as a writer now at this point in your storytelling life? Well, she just jumped into my head. You know, I thought, okay, we've got a, we've got a murder scene, so there's going to be detectives who will be summoned and who will arrive. Um, and I quite like the idea, it's by no means a, a, a novelty, that you'd have one would be seasoned, perhaps on the verge of um, retiring, and one would be younger and have a different skill set. Um, and I thought it'd be nice if one was male and one was female. And I decided the older guy would be, would, you know, the retiree would be male and the younger cop would be female. Um, and just sort of putting the two of them together. And, if, you know, he, he's a, a, a sole parent, his, but his daughter has grown up and left home. She lives at home with her mum and her mum is, is, has dementia and carers and neighbours come in and look after her. So you've got, you know, they, their personal lives developed in front of my eyes as I was starting to write the story. Um, but she just jumped onto the page, as Rebus did in the early days. He just jumped onto the page and, and came out of nowhere. And sometimes the best characters just come out of nowhere. They announce themselves as the best person to tell the story you want to tell. Mm. I think the, the um, one of the functions of the brevity of the form, the shortness of this particular story is how much as a reader, every single sort of brushstroke of that characterization really counts. And it's really beautifully done here. You really get these two characters in, in their sort of different stages of their lives. What, what did you feel were the kind of respectively the constraints or, and the liberations of this kind of brief or shorter form? Um, well, the, 
you couldn't, I mean, the Rebus novels will have a cast of 40, 50, 60 characters. I knew I couldn't mm -hmm. do that. Um, if it's going to be read in one or two sittings, you want everybody to keep it all in their head. Uh, it has to be containable. Um, so I decided, okay, we've got a high-rise block of billionaires and millionaires, but not many of them can be at home. I can only deal with maybe half a dozen of them being in situ. And I thought, well, that's fine because most of these apartments will be empty anyway, um, permanently empty. Um, and so I thought, okay, who have I got? Which characters do I need? Uh, Who would be interesting? I thought an oligarch's an interesting character. Maybe a tech billionaire's an interesting character. S somebody from a Saudi royal family could be an interesting character. Um, maybe a famous actor or actress. Um, and I just, you know, so I started to juggle with who would be interesting people for me to spend time with. Um, and, and Gish, my young detective, just she just seemed like a fascinating character to me because she is um, – she sees things that the older guy doesn't see. She sees things that the seasoned cop, uh, her ostensible partner, although they're thrown together, as would happen in a real investigation. They don't really know each other that well. They know each other vaguely. Um, but she would have skills that he doesn't have. He would have he would have life experience that she hasn't got. They can learn from each other. Um, but which one of them is a leader? There's a kind of, there's always going to be a slight jostling, although he is her senior in rank. Um, when it comes to looking up things on computers or or interviewing people, in some ways she will be seen as his superior. She's better than him at doing some of this stuff. And I was wanting to get in a sense of the teamwork that goes on in a police inquiry, but again, keep it quite tight because I've only got a limited number of words to use. So as you say, it had to be brushstrokes. Mm -hmm. I had to try and sum up a character in a couple of lines. So there's one cop back at the police station who chews gum. Uh, uh, and and uh, Milton, the older cop, says, why is she always chewing gum? And Gish says, because if she doesn't, she's on 40 a day. <laughs> and I just think, you know, that's one, two lines, but it gives you an idea of the person, that, 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 you know, the person behind the person. So the, the, the other cop is, is a bit more human and a bit more 3D than might otherwise be the case. Because in crime fiction, it certainly used to be the case that a lot of the characters were only there to furnish the information yeah. that the cops needed, the central characters needed, or you felt the reader needed. So the purpose of a whole of a um, Watson in the Sherlock Holmes stories is to say, but how could you have possibly worked it out, Holmes, so that Holmes can tell us the readers? Mm -hmm. um, and that's often been the case with the sidekick of the detective is, is just there to say, but how, how do you know that? Which is the one question that the uh, reader really wants to know. Um, but I thought, well, I can do it. You know, I can do a little bit more than that. She, um, Gish, although she's the junior member, is not going to be saying, "Oh, but how did you work that one out?" Because she's busy solving it by herself, hmm. um, going off and doing her own little investigation. Um, so that was fun. It was fun, and it was because I knew that it wasn't going to be the six-month haul that a novel can be. I thought I can relax a little bit. Yeah. No, I can actually have some fun. It's going to zoom along. It's going to be set over just two or three days. Um, in fact, originally it was just going to be set over one night. But I thought it's unrealistic that you wrap up a crime in 12 hours or whatever it is. You know, for the readers, I think it's unrealistic. So I thought, okay, so we do need scenes at the police station and we do need the personal lives of the characters. Um, but we're really only, only in those two places. We're either in the police station or we're in the building itself. We're in the rise. Um, so again, you get that slight claustrophobia, mm. uh, which I quite liked because I was kind of saying, you know, this, this is a claustrophobic situation. Mm. These billionaires are basically imprisoning themselves in cells because the outside world terrifies them. Mm. Mm. Well, it also reminded me slightly of a, a kind of a, 
the contemporary version of a country house murder. Yeah. It's a locked room mystery. Yeah. At its heart, it's like a locked room mystery. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a high security place, the CCTV, there are, you know, high security doors and everything to get through. Um, why was this concierge, this this night guard, why was he killed? Who, you know, who did it? What, what in the building did they want? Or was it someone who lives in the building? And if so, why? Was it personal? Was it just business? You know, what's going on here? Um, so there's a lot, a lot of threads, mm -hmm. um, but not so many that the reader is going to get totally bamboozled. And I think I've played fair. I think yeah. if you if you follow all the clues, you too can solve the the crime. Yeah, I think that's. I think you've played fair as well from my point as a reader. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't kind of get that sort of hold on a minute moment yeah. sometime when you feel the rug being twitched underneath your feet. <laughs> it's, an, it's an unusual project for me, really, Chris, because as I say, when I'm writing a book, I'm normally just make it up as I go. Yeah. And even if I'm writing a stage play or whatever, I usually just make it up as I go. And this was more of a kind of high concept thing. I sort of knew before I started it where I wanted it to go and what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, and it was of a size and a length that I could contain it in my head. Whereas a novel is just too much. There's too much to, to keep it in your head and or for me keep it all in my head, which is why I'm much happier making it up as I go along, mm -hmm. hoping that eventually the book will tell me what's going on. Mm. Well, I kind of, I wondered if you'd, what, if anything, you learned about yourself as a writer through coming, kind of facing this particular constraint and doing this high concept kind of brief approach. Um, well, you know, I've got very comfortable writing the Rebus books and I always like to, if I can, get out of my comfort zone. And this took me out of my comfort zone. It's a high concept thriller. It's of a length that I've not done, I've hardly done this kind of length before. Mm -hmm. I didn't know whether the length would work when I sat down to start it. Um, I, you know, and I got, I was very reassured when I got to the end of the first draft and it was pretty much spot on lengthwise. Mm -hmm. so I had no idea uh, if it was going to be too short, too long or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was, it's that stretching yourself. It's trying to do something, trying to tell a story in a slightly different way or get into the heads of a different set of characters. Um, it just stops me getting lazy. Mm. It stops me getting lazy as a writer. It would be very easy for me to coast writing a Rebus novel, people knowing kind of what they're going to get. It's not going to be a comedy of manners. It's not going to be Jane Austen. It's going to be Rebus again. It's going to be set in Edinburgh. It's not going to be set in Timbuktu or New York. Um, so this, setting it in London, a place I've hardly written about at all in my fiction, was interesting. Setting it in contemporary London, the London of dark money and oligarchs was interesting. Um, the kind of cast of characters is a much more high calibre, you know, much more high society than the people who would normally inhabit my books. Um, so all of that meant that I had to, it gave me challenges, but it's good to be challenged, I think. Mm. It's partly the reason why I decided that Rebus would live more or less in real time, mm. because then I couldn't coast, because between books he has aged and his life has moved on and he has changed physically and psychologically. So when I start a new book, it keeps me on my toes. It's like I've got a new character in front of me. It's not, you know, like Miss Marple hardly changes, right, during the course right. of the books. Hercule Poirot hardly changes during the course of the books. But Rebus, we've watched age more or less in real time, mm. from being late 30s in book one, to now be in 70. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm absolutely going to come back to Rebus as given that uh, kind of, I think this Christmas I read the latest one and I have questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which will all be, answered, all be answered next year, young man. Oh, don't. <laughs> That's the answer already. Uh, <laughs> so 
what do you think you've come away with from kind of setting yourself this challenge with with the uh, the Amazon original stories format? What, do you think it might liberate you to do other things, exercising a new muscle somehow? Well, it's an interesting length. I mean, in some ways, it's an unsellable length if you try to do it as a book, because mm. novellas just don't sell, do they? Unless you're doing it as an ebook or you're doing it as an audiobook. Um, and yet they should. A high end publisher to mm. publish it in a very short format with big font. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you do, if you, what you do is you, you add a few short stories in there, and you've got a collection. I mean, yeah. you know, you see that a lot. It's always it's always surprised me though that short stories are not more in vogue than they should be because the kind of lives that we lead now, where you've got a shortish commute to work or a shortish commute home from work. You know, people are getting into podcasts. A half-hour podcast is ideal for your commute. Mm. Well, so is an audiobook or indeed an ebook. So you can, on the course of a journey to and from work, you can have read this uh, on your phone or your Kindle or whatever. You could have listened to it. You can listen to the audio version. So it's, I think it's a very pleasing length. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot easier than having to sit down with a 700-page novel. I mean, as great as Demon Copperhead is, it's quite a hefty book to carry around with you all day. It is, yeah, yeah, more of a bedside table than a bedside read, as I think someone once said. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of thinking about that, that that bigger that bigger task of a novel and the the difficulty of holding it all in your head, so kind of feeling less comfortable with kind of dealing with or having to deal with the uncertainty. Um, is that sort of mitigated to a degree by the fact that you, I mean, you don't just write Rebus novels, of course, you write under other names and you've written other things, but with returning to Rebus, is there sort of a degree of security in that kind of um, that context that it sort of means that you don't have to face some of that uncertainty any longer? You know his world so well. I don't know. I mean, there are, there are positives and negatives about it. There are lots of challenges that come with writing about the same person. You don't want to be bored by them. You don't want the reader to get bored of them. So you've got to keep making them interesting. Um, the thing about the Rebus books is when I get an idea for a story, it's only after I've got the kind of general idea for the story that I think which character is going to be the best character to tell this story. Mm. And so far, the answer has almost always been Rebus, but mm-hmm. it might it needn't necessarily be the case. Um, I might get ideas for stories and think, well, it can't be Rebus who tells this one. It's got to be someone else. And that could be Siobhan Clark, his, his one-time colleague who's still a serving police officer. It could be a completely different character. Um, but once I've decided that Rebus is the best person to tell the story, then I've got to get my thinking cap on and think, okay, so what? how's he doing? Mm-hmm. How's his health? What's his social situation, his love life? Um, you know, how hard is it going to be to for him to inveigle his way into a criminal investigation uh, because he's an OAP? Um, and he's coming up against cops who started the job after he retired. Mm. So they don't know who he is. So they're not going to give him any leeway. They're not going to allow him past the crime scene tape. They're not going to let him into a murder scene. He's got yeah. to use his wits and his guile to try and get his way past the cordon and get into the murder scene. Uh, in an attempt to show the world that he can still make a difference, Mm. that he still has a role to play, that he needn't be put out to pasture. Um, And and so that's been interesting to me since I retired. I I retired him a long time ago. Exit Music was meant to be, intended to be, and I thought would be the final Rebus novel. Yeah. Because he was retirement age. He could no longer operate as a cop. And then I went away and I spent five years not writing about him. I then got an idea for a, a, a book that involved a cold case. And there was a unit in Edinburgh that looked into cold cases, and it was staffed entirely by retired detectives. Mm. 
And I thought, well, do I invent a new retired detective? I've already got one. <laughs> you know, and Rebus would not go gentle into that good night. He would want to feel useful. He'd, if there's any chance of him getting a job, he'll take it. So as a civilian, he joins the cold case unit and suddenly he's back. And it was I was terrified that his voice would no longer be there, mm. not having written about him for five years. Um, but no, he he leapt onto the page. I think that the first book opened, uh, the retirement books, the first one, um, Standing at Another Man's Grave, opens at a funeral. And Rebus yeah. is at a distance. He's at the very back, uh, at, not at graveside, but further back at the trees. And his first thought is, I'm gasping for a cigarette. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, you're, you're here. Still there. You, you never went away. <laughs> you, never, you know, there's a line in Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, uh, Dr. Jekyll says, my demon had been long caged. He came out bounding or something, or he came out leaping. Um, you know, he's unlocked a part of his brain that brings Hyde back into being. And that's just what it was like. It was like Rebus had been kept in a little cell in my head. And when I unlocked it and opened the door, out he came, ready for more shenanigans. <laughs> Thinking about kind of Rebus in a different guise, uh, I know that they, uh, there is a new TV adaptation. Is it 24 or 23 that's due? It's going to, it's going to be coming out in 24, 2024. It's, um, it's an interesting one because it's, I think it's a six-parter. It's six times one hour uh -huh. to tell one story. Because um, I, I didn't feel best served by television previously because – when they originally did it, it was two hours on ITV, which was an hour and 40 minutes plus advertising breaks yeah. per book. Um, and then when they brought it back with Ken Stott rather than John Hanna, they took it down to one hour on ITV, which was 45 minutes mm -hmm. per book. Well, that's a 45-page script from a 400-page novel, so you throw yeah. everything out. Everything yeah. gets thrown out apart from the title, and you, you start building up. This, given six hours, means that the screenwriter, the scriptwriter, um, Gregory Burke, who's fantastic. Um, we've got a lot in common, so I trust him completely. He's been able to develop and develop and develop, and get the, the characters have all got room to breathe. It's not just about the plot. It's not just about the red herrings. The characters are given a lot of time to develop, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I'm hopeful. I've only seen the first uh, two episodes so far. There's only two episodes finished. I mean, it's all filmed. It's all in the can. Um, but they're editing it and tweaking it and doing this and doing that. And it's looking great. It looks okay. great. And and we've got my almost namesake, Richard Rankin, playing Rebus. Which yes, is I wanted that. I was thinking people, this, people this think is it's more or less unlikely. <laughs> nepotism writ large, but it's just absolute coincidence. And he's terrific. He's terrific. But one thing that's going to slightly discombobulate long-time Rebus fans is that he's young. This is what I was going to ask. So where are we in his life? Jim? Well, the book is set in the present day. So the book is set, you know, 2023. Sorry, the book, the TV series is set 2023. But Rebus is in his 40s. So we've gone back to the kind of macho Rebus of the early books mm -hmm. when he's, he's, he can be physically intimidating and he can chase suspects down the street and stuff. So we've got that lively, full of vim and vigor Rebus that's set against contemporary times and contemporary politics. Excellent. And is it a, a brand new storyline as well? I, again, what's happened is me and um, uh, Gregory sat down and we bounced stuff around and he's taken threads and plots and subplots from, I would say, three or four of the books mm -hmm. and weaved them in and then added in a couple of new things. But as you're watching it, if you're a Rebus fan, you're going, oh, yeah, that's from that book. 
mm-hmm. but that's from that book and that's from but it all it all gets woven in so beautifully um yeah. that it makes one very coherent story right, I've, I've got a couple of questions i'm really interested in this idea of i don't know if this is a word but the netflixification of books you know giving you more space much more time it just seems like a much richer more exciting opportunity to, for fans of book adaptations but I'll, I'll come back to that but i just i also read somewhere that you literally discovered them filming the the new reba series while you were walking through edinburgh without realizing it was there yeah twice happened to me twice um the first time i was walking to the oxford bar and as I was walking along George Street, one of the main streets in central Edinburgh, I could see all these lorries and vans and things. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? And somebody said to me, oh, they're filming. I said, what are they filming? It's called Rebus. I went, all right. Um, so I walked down at the Oxford Bar, and sure enough, they were setting up outside. Um, so I got to meet the director. I can't remember if Richard Rankin was there that day. I certainly got to meet the di- Oh, yeah, I did meet him. I met the director, and I meet the act- met the actor for the first time, just as I was going into the pub for a pint. They were only doing exterior shots, so it wasn't a problem. Another day I was walking along behind the university library, Edinburgh University Library, um, and there was another unit set up, and I thought, oh, here we go again. So I stopped and watched, and there was Richard Rankin walking out of the library, which is, no, not the library, sorry, the theatre, the Aikman Theatre, which is next to the university library, walking out of it because they've transformed it into a police station. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so it was quite fun because, you know, I was at Edinburgh University studying for a PhD when I wrote the first Rebus novel. So it was like things had come full circle. It sounds like a, a peculiarly postmodern kind of sh- short story writing itself for you on the yeah, spot. Yeah, or it's what you call it, Uriboros or whatever, where they can eat. <laughs> yeah, eating its, its own tail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it must have been a very strange feeling to kind of see that starting to take shape in front of you. Yeah, although you don't really see it taking shape in front of you. Yeah. Um, you see tiny, tiny bits. Um, but the screenwriter, Gregory Burke, um, was there every day. He was sitting behind the camera every day with the director. He was so hands-on. Yeah. Uh, he loves working with actors. He's written plays as well as screenplays. Um, he loves being around actors, loves working with them. And I just thought, this is great. I don't need to be here every day because Greg's here every day. Yeah. And you yourself have kind of uh, worked on a play that kind of came from the Rebus stable as well. Did that sort of inform your conversations with the screenwriter for the new adaptation? Uh, no, because, let me think, um, the play was written during lockdown, right? And I think we had most of Rebus scripted before that. I can't, I honestly can't remember. No, it didn't. I mean, again, it's the the Rebus stage play, which has only been seen so far in Hornchurch in Essex, but we're hoping we'll tour next year. Was written during lockdown, and it was written for lockdown. Right. I thought when theatres come out of lockdown, what are they going to look for? They're going to look for a two act play because they want an interval because that's when they make their money from the bar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, six actors maximum so that they keep costs down one set unchanging yeah so it's basically an inspector calls yeah it's what it is it's a dinner party in Edinburgh but but one of the dinner party guests is Rebus aged around 65 to 70 so retired yeah so it's that period Um, and they're playing a murder mystery game that the hostess has devised uh, and then at the end of Act 1, somebody comes from the toilet and said, by the way, there's a body in the toilet. Cut. And then you start Act 2, and there's a real mystery to be solved before the police arrive. So Rebus is trying to solve it before Siobhan Clark and her colleagues arrive. 
Fantastic. So the, there's another sort of very kind of classical uh, murder mystery trope there, isn't there? Brilliant. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, it's like a closed room. You've got six people. One of them must have done it. Five, if you exclude the detective. Um, you know, six characters in search of an author kind of territory as well. <laughs> Slightly postmodernist, nodding to an inspector calls, nodding to the kind of Cluedo-style traditional mystery story because you've got this this fictional mystery they're trying to solve. is takes place in a country house and the, the lord of the manor has been found bludgeoned, etc., etc. Could it be the butler? Could it mm. be the groundskeeper? Um, so you've got all of that going on, but these very modern people trying to solve it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, and having previewed it at Hornchurch, uh, me seeing it for the first time, I thought, oh, I really, I could do with that and a little bit there and a little bit there and a little bit there. So I spent a month earlier this year doing that. So it is now, I think, I think it's 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 right now. It's just perfect now, and it's ready, ready for people to see it. So hopefully, the producers at the moment are looking at a tour. So hopefully next year, uh, it'll be touring the UK. Oh, fantastic! Oh, that's really great news. And as you say, kind of, I just think those theatre kind of producers, those receiving theatres who need two act plays with <laughs> an interval and a great kind of economic model, perfect. Six actors, no scene changes, yeah. just, no just get in there, yeah. A few you props, just, but props, props are pretty cheap. Props um, are fine. But, I mean, I've written plays before and I find it really hard because as a novelist, you get as many words as you need, yeah. as many characters as you need, um, and, and time is malleable. Whereas in a play, everything's a lot tighter. You know, you've got to have doors, but the doors, you can only have so many doors, you can only have mm. so many scene changes, so many actors. Um, so it's a, it's a, it, 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 it messes with your head and it, it makes you, it, it just stretches you as a writer. It makes you think differently about how can I do this? How can I tell the story I want to tell within these constraints? Novelists have probably the fewest constraints of any writing form well maybe poetry i guess poetry we're all in oh every novelist is jealous of poets right because <laughs> poets can say in one line what it takes me a hundred thousand words to say you know yeah. and i'm always very i'm always very uh envious of poets who are also novelists so muriel spark mm. possibly my favorite novelist of all time was a poet yeah and on her grave in italy it just says muriel spark poeta it doesn't yeah. say novelist it just says poeta she always thought of herself as a poet who wrote novels, yeah. not a novelist who wrote poetry. Well, it kind of struck me that the, the rise is sort of halfway a house between a novel and a, a play. In that sense, it's kind of very structured because of the time limits. Um, you, you said earlier that kind of you might have started almost writing novels too early in your, in your life. Um, have you, what, what are the major changes that you've kind of seen in, kind of across that writing span in terms of what the writer's life is, what you have to do to be a writer? How long have you got? Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't understand uh, the industry now. There's a lot of the industry I don't understand now. I mean, now you can be a hugely successful writer without going anywhere near a traditional publishing house. Yeah, if you're willing to put in the hours to self-promote yeah. and to self-edit and to design your covers and everything else and mm -hmm. to proofread your books and all that, you can sell your stuff direct online and mm -hmm. make a good living from doing it eventually. And you can bypass agents, traditional publishers, paper publishing, the whole thing. You can do a deal with Amazon, yeah. you know, and they'll take a much smaller cut of your earnings than a traditional publishing house will. You know, I mean, a traditional publisher, you get, what is it, 10%? Author yeah. usually gets 10% of the cover price. Um, but you can do deals with Amazon and elsewhere online where you're getting much more than that. So that model is, I mean, you know, when I started in this game, I got the train down to London. I even, you know what, I might have even got the night bus because that was cheaper. I was still a student. 
mm-hmm. when my first book, my well, the first Rebus novel was signed up, I was still a student. I got the night, probably night bus to London and then walked to Bloomsbury to my publishing house, Bodley Head, and went in naively thinking that Muriel Spark and Graham Greene would be sitting in reception waiting to see their editors, you know, because Bodley Head published Graham Greene and Muriel Spark at that mm-hmm. time, amongst others. You know, I, what did I know? I knew nothing about the traditional publishing model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my editor took me to his club for lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was all like that. And that that's gone. Yeah. I mean, you know, within 10 years that was starting to go. And publishing in the UK was becoming less of a gentleman's hobby uh, and a bit more hard-nosed and, and, and um, driven by accountants and bottom lines and American practices. Mm-hmm. So all of those changes have been huge. The internet arriving has been huge for publishers and authors and everybody else and readers. Um, and I don't understand it. I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm a Luddite. My, my computer at home runs on coal. <laughs> um, I, I've still got a CD-ROM in my computer. I use the same table that I bought in 1986. Um, I print everything out and edit it on the printed page. Mm-hmm. I've got no idea how to send WhatsApp messages or anything like this. So, you know, I, when I started in this game, the first novel I wrote, I went to the university library to photocopy it because that was the cheapest way of photocopying. I think it was two pence a sheet. But you had to feed two pences into the machine, mm-hmm. into the slot of the printer and just press it. So you take, for a 200-page novel, you were 200 sheets, 202 pences, and then press the button to print each sheet, which I then put in a jiffy bag and took to the post office to physically post a publisher in London so they could send it back to me three months later, <laughs> not for us. Um, now, when I finish, and that, that was great. The great thing about that was you've sweated blood over this book, and now here's all this physical hard work that goes with it. Now I finish the book, and I press send. Yeah. And, and it's like there's no it. effort at all. And it's like this this thing has no weight. This thing has no significance. Mm. It's just it's just a lot of numerals that are getting sent around around the globe. And I just go, ah, I, you know, I hark back to those lovely days of queuing at the post office with this big, heavy manuscript thinking, I wrote this. Was it wasn't so nice, nice when it came back, though. <laughs> no, well, at least they sent it back. <laughs> they did send it back, yeah. Yeah, that certainly wouldn't happen these days. Do you think it's something about the ritual that's quite important to finishing that? I think, I mean, ritual's important to every writer. Even now, if you go online, whenever a writer finishes their book, they always post a photograph, don't they, a screenshot of the end yeah. at the bottom of the screen. Or how many words? Usually with the word count at the bottom. I never do the word count. I, don't, I mean, I don't, what's the obsession with word count? I have no idea why people do that. Oh, I wrote 3,000 words today. So what? What if they're terrible words? <laughs> Wouldn't you rather write 500 fantastic words than 3,000 poor words? No, I never look at that. I never look at any of it. It's only when I print it out and start page numbering that I get a sense of how long the book is. Yeah. So kind of you've got, I think you're on, is, is it right that you're under contract to do one more rebus? Yeah, I'm under contract to do one more rebus, which I'm going to start fairly soon. Um, and it'll be, it's got to be in by June next year and it'll be published, I guess, October next year. Uh-huh. And yes, it will be a rebus. And my agent is terrified it'll be the last rebus. Um <laughs> But as you know, I mean, the, the, the last book that I, that I published, um, Heartful of Headstones, had the feeling of being, a, of being an ending, being a, you know, a, a, a big, fat, full stop at the end of a series. Or so I um, thought until the end. Yeah, I thought, I kind of thought so too. And then I thought, no, there's one more thing I need to, there's at least one more thing I need to say. It's a bit like, you know, uh, 
Columbo when he's just about to leave the suspect. And he goes, just one more thing. <laughs> it's like whenever I think I'm done with Rebus or I'm done with writing about Edmore or done with writing crime fiction, I go, wait a minute, though, what about that? I need to, and I've not said that yet. Or I've not explored that aspect of Rebus's character yet. Or I've not done this with them, and I could that would be an interesting thing to do. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. like this guy has a he has an independent life, which I have no control over. What's in fact, sometimes I feel that he made me up. I didn't make him up; he made me up. He controls me, um, and it's it's extraordinary. And people come to the Oxford Bar, and and they're so disappointed when he's not there waiting for them. Because he seems so real to them. And, of course, it's a real pub, so they think they're going to find him there. And all they find is this pale facsimile, this palimpsest, <laughs> this grey author who's not very interesting. hasn't been written by his own creation. Really? I mean, what did you do this year, Ian? Well, I wrote a book. Anything else? No. <laughs> you know, he gets to have all the adventures. I get mm. to have no adventures at all. And one of the joys of Rebus, I think, is perhaps one of the reasons why he feels like so independent to readers is that he's a man who is in constant dialogue with the world around him, and not not just dialogue, but a kind of an exasperated argument. Mm -hmm. So you you kind of you feel like he's very alive in the present, and I, and I do think that kind of having him age kind of properly alongside the, the readership has worked brilliantly for that, even though it must have set you an enormous amount of challenge. Yeah, I mean, it did. I wanted to do it because I thought, how can you write about the changing nature of the UK, Scotland, Edinburgh, politics, the economy, culture, society, if your detective doesn't change, mm -hmm. if your detective is in aspic, never, yeah. never ages? I thought, no, he needs to age. He needs to age. So, um, so yeah, that early on, I thought, no, he is going to age in real time. But I had no idea, of course, that I was going to be writing about, um, oh God, nearly 40 years on mm. from when I started. Is it nearly 40 years? It is almost nearly 40 years on. Um, I think I started writing the first novel in 84, 85. Um, God, that's depressing. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I've known him longer than I've known most of my friends, you know. I've, yeah. known, him long, I've known him almost as long as I've known my wife. Uh, and, and yet I don't really know him at all. I'm still learning about him, which is why I keep having to write more books to get to the centre of what makes them tick. Well, I, I'm really very much looking forward to kind of finding out what happens after the ending of the last one, which kind of left me slightly sweaty and kind of... Good, good. Outraged. Excellent, excellent. That's, that's it. And you can blame my agent for some of that without giving away too much. It was my... One thing at the end was my agent's idea, not my idea. So there you go. Okay, great. Well, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll shake their hand. Um, <laughs> Can I can I ask you? We're going to kind of round up shortly, but can I ask you kind of what you're reading or, or what have you read recently that has really sort of got your heart kind of quickening? Um, yeah, there's a guy, a Scottish writer called Michael Malone, and he's got a novel called The Murmurs, which isn't it's coming out right now, I think. Mm -hmm. And he sent me an early copy of it, and it's really good. It's spooky. It's scary. It's a a young woman who seems to be able to see when people are going to die. Um, and he takes that in all kinds of interesting directions. There's a kind of serial killer at large. There's a lot of family stuff from her past she's got to uncover. And he does it in under 300 pages or 350 pages. I'm, as I get older, I'm a huge fan of shorter books. <laughs> um, and I just literally just finished reading Jilly Cooper's next one, which I don't think is published until November. Um, I was snowed in once in, in uh, France with my wife. And the only book in the house I hadn't read was her Jilly Cooper novel, Rivals. So I picked up and read it. Bloody loved it. Yeah. Um, I thought it was just such a, a great escapist romp. 
Um, and it was a it was a kind of rutshire was a place I wanted to visit, <laughs> hang out with all these reprobates, these posh reprobates, as they were rutting in rutshire. Anyway, they're all back in this book. Um, Rupert Campbell Black is back, but he's now the good guy, not the bad guy. It's, he gets into the world of football, buys a football team, and it's what happens to the football team. So a lot of fun, a lot Wonderful. of fun. I'm so glad because I think she's really got her mojo back. This this has touches of the classic rivals and riders era, Jilly Cooper, about it. So there yeah. you go, two very different books for I, you. I used to work at Waterstones on Deansgate back in the days when Robert Topping was running it, and they yeah. had Dead on Deansgate, and Jilly was Cooper there? was one of... Well, I remember, yeah. Uh, one of the she was one of the shop's most favourite visiting authors because she was such an unalloyed joy to welcome as a reader and as a writer. <laughs> yeah, and every time I mention her in an interview, she sends me a present. So yeah. <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Thank you so I much. Still, for still, I still, I still see Robert Topping from time to time. He's just one of the great booksellers. It, amazing. I learned so much in my time working with him. Absolutely, just incredible. And also, I know I worked with just a brilliant range of people in that shop who've gone on to do some fantastic things in the publishing world, still all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of ways. And I should mention in passing because of, because of who you are and where you are, that of course I was visiting professor of creative writing at Norwich you at UEA for yeah. a while. And in my class, I had, um, I had various authors, including Harriet Tice. Yes. So she owes everything to me. <laughs> Excellent. Harriet, if you're watching, you know, um, no, I mean, she'd, she'd already finished her first novel, I think, by the time I was te trying to teach her. I wasn't really teaching. That was Blood Orange, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it was it was an extraordinary thing. A lot of the authors on that course already had agents. Yeah. Um, they had books that were under option or whatever. I thought, wow, the world has changed so much. When I started in this game, there was literally one creative writing course in the whole of the UK, and it was UEA. Yeah. Yeah, and no, just no. last week, I had dinner with um, Ian McEwen, who, of course, was the first ever um, uh, student yeah. at UEA, uh, and who talks about it fondly, but he didn't get an awful lot of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was even a proper course at that point. It was just him kind of talking to, to a couple of venerable older writers, Malcolm Bradbury et al. <laughs> yeah, 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 Malcolm Bradbury just in the pub saying, keep yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've we, we've got uh, Noirich, the kind of the crime writing mm -hmm. festival that we run, kind of the lecture this evening. So I'll pass on my very best wishes from you to Great. to those guys. And Great. thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. We're really it's been a joy to read uh, the Rise, which is out in November as part of the Amazon um, short stories collection, and uh, can't recommend it enough. Thank you very much. Thank you. A big thank you to Ian Rankin and to Chris for their time, and thank you to you for listening. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on our website by going to the Support Us page. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and a review, because this helps other writers to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>